0: Ephesians chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible there. Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 1 we saw that God has a purpose for all things that we would live for the praise of the glory of his grace. This is why we exist for God. God doesn't exist for us, but we exist for God and that. According to chapter 1, verse 10, that all things are to be put into subjection to Christ that has been done through the cross and the resurrection, but ultimately it will be seen to be done by all people at the millennial kingdom, followed by the eternal state, that all things will be put under subjection to Christ. So this is the way God glorifies himself by putting all things under his rule. And Paul in the second half of chapter 1 prays for the believers to understand that they are part of God's plan. That they exist for God's glory. That they exist for the purpose of God revealing His greatness. And in chapter 2, verses 1-10, through Paul shows us how God is bringing all things under subjection to Christ. And the first way that he does that is by saving individuals. In order for us to to display God's glory in a dynamic way, we have to first be saved, and that's what chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is about. Today we'll see that God's purpose continues to move forward in in this great purpose of exalting himself by uniting Jew and Gentile into one body. That's what today's passage is about so let's read this passage chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 this is the word of God therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands remember that you were at that time separate from Christ Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole body, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place, uh, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, God is existing to glorify Himself by bringing all things into subjection to Christ. But there are two obstacles to Him exalting Christ and making His name known as it should be. One is the heavenly powers are fighting against Him. You recognize that this is only temporary because Christ will have final rule. In fact, they will be removed from the, the, uh, the second heaven and they will not be able to do anything uh, in the arena of of where God resides. Uh, Satan, you remember, has already been removed from the third heaven when he was a holy angel at one time, but he fell away and uh, took apparently a third of the angels with him. But at the, uh, during the tribulation, they're going to be removed. Michael, the archangel, and the other angels are going to have power over Satan and his demons, and they're going to be removed from there. He recognized that now they are, uh, like in the book of Job, they are accusing us before God. So like like Satan did with Job, he goes before God and says, you know, is Job really that worthy of a servant? Is he not just serving you just because you've given him all these things? Take away all these things and then see what happens. And so Satan is accusing us before God, but that's going to stop at the tribulation. Obviously, it would be gone, but... But then Satan and his demons will be confined to the earth, basically. They'll only be able to do harm to the people on the earth, not within the heavenly realms as they are now, uh, somehow um, um, trying to uh, accuse us before God. And then eventually you recognize during the millennial kingdom that all the demons will be removed at that time and Satan will be put into the abyss for 1,000 years. And at the end of that time, he and all the demons will be judged along with all the wicked people and will forever be thrown into the lake of fire and uh and no more will evil or sin plague any of us okay um whether that be tribulation saints church saints or millennium saints okay so the the really this this uh this battle that's going on is only a temporary battle so there are two things that that uh That are keeping God from being glorified as much as he should one is the heavenly powers are fighting against him and two is that the church is not united the church is not united and so what Christ did when he came is he helped unite the church in fact he established the church so that it would be united and when I say united what I mean by that is that he's uniting both Jew and Gentile that we were as Gentiles once separated from God, but now we can be reconciled both to God and to our relationship with the Jews. Now, we don't feel this tension as much, do we, in our day? Because either we don't know very many Jews or we didn't, we never felt uh, the being ostracized from a, a covenant community like the Gentiles of the Old Testament were. Okay? So we don't really uh, sense what it was like to be far away from both God and from the the Jewish community. But hopefully, as we look through this today, we'll see a little bit more of what it meant to be a Gentile in the Old Testament. And now, as Christ brings us near to Him and to the other Jews, we have this great relationship. So once separated from God, now we are reconciled to God and to the Jews. Notice in verses 11 and 12, we see where we once were. In fact, if you were to pay attention throughout this passage, there's several things that show how far away from God we were. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were called circumcision, uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the, the, uh, f- the flesh by human hands. Remember, here's all the ways in which we were far away. We were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And if you were to go on farther down the passage, you'd see that there's a barrier of a dividing wall, verse 14, between us and the Jews. We couldn't have peace with the Jews really. It was only if we became a Jew, we became proselytized in order to be a part of their community. Look at verse 19. No longer are you strangers and aliens. So we see that we were far away from, from God and from the covenant community. We were separate from Christ. We, we didn't have uh, the Messiah born in our, uh, as part of our descendants, did we? As, part, as being Gentiles, He was born as a Jew, wasn't He? And, then, and verse, 11, or verse 12 says that we were strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope. I mean, think about all the Gentiles in the world in Old Testament history. And they were far away from God's God's uh, workings, his dealings with people. If you weren't a Jew, then you weren't uh you didn't you couldn't have a right relationship with God. When I say you weren't a Jew either ethnically or you joined into their community by following all of their uh their, their covenants and so on, their, their their responsibilities of being a Jew. you got to be a part of the covenant community. And even then, as a Gentile, you were restricted from certain activities, right? Are there any Gentiles that could be priests? Uh, you know, and obviously, you think about it in the, with the temple in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. There was actually a place where they could only go so far, the Gentiles. They couldn't go all the way into the inner courts they had to, they had to be stopped because they were gentiles even though they were god-fearing gentiles right they still had restrictions and so not being born a Jew was actually something that made them far away alienated strangers verse 19 says and then without god in the world verse 21 or verse 12 excuse me without god in the world turn to chapter 4 verse 17 chapter four, verse seventeen. This is how Gentiles are described. so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. You know what the word Gentiles is equivalent to? the same word as pagans, okay or the nations. It's often translated the nations, that is the ones who are far away from God. So you don't walk that way anymore like the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind verse 18 being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. So as a Gentile, we were far away from God because we were ignorant of the things of God. We weren't born into the covenant community. We weren't born into the Jewish ethnic group and so we weren't circumcised from the eighth day, right? And so now we're automatically joined in the community. No, that's not the way it was. We were especially if we didn't live near any Jews, we were far away from God. We didn't understand what was going on. And so we can summarize all of how we formerly were with the two words in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off. That's how I would describe how we were before we came to Christ, before Christ came along. We were far off. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. So what the Gospel does is now takes those who are far off like the Gentiles, we who are Gentiles, and brings them near. You see, Israel was God's chosen nation and therefore everyone outside of Israel was rejected by God. And that was the default. They were rejected by God. But that's not the way it was going to be forever. Abraham... Through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham didn't understand what this was going to look like. He didn't understand that they would come together in one body called the church. But he understood that the Gentiles were far off in some way, that the Gentiles would receive some sort of ancillary blessing. And perhaps he thought of it as Gentiles would come into the Jewish community, that they would be circumcised, and now start to share some of the benefits, but only in a limited way. And perhaps that's how Abraham viewed that it would be for all time, but here's what Jesus is doing with the cross. He's actually uniting Jew and Gentile in a way that had not been done in human history. How exactly was that going to be accomplished? How would the Jews and the Gentiles be united? And the answer comes in verses 13 and following that we are united with the Jews in Christ, in His body that He provides for us. We could call it union with Christ. So, formerly we were far off and now we are brought near both to God and to the Jews. Okay, union with Christ. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The foundation of this union is the blood of Christ. That we are united with Christ. I mentioned this in my prayer earlier to God that, that um, we have, because we are in Christ, we stand before God as spotless because our sins have been paid for because Christ took them upon Himself. Right, He took our punishment. But also, we stand before God as perfectly righteous, even though we're not, because we stand in Christ. That's our position. That's what union with Christ is, is. This inseparable bond between us and Christ. So when Christ lived on this earth and He fulfilled all the, the, the righteousnesses that He did and He fulfilled all the things that God wanted Him to do, it was as if you and I were doing that. That's what it means to be in Christ. And when Christ died on the cross as a perfect substitute, it was as if we died for our own sin, in, a, in an acceptable way. Obviously, we couldn't do that because we're not perfect. But in Christ, we have this inseparable bond. As a result of the cross, we are brought near. Look at verse sixteen, uh, verse verse fourteen. Excuse me, verse fourteen. For He Himself is our peace. That is, Jesus Christ is our peace. How is He our peace? Well, He made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Jesus is our peace. Romans 5 1 says this Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's that right standing I was just talking about, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we think about it with In terms of us and God, what was it like before we came to God? We were aliens, strangers. We were hostile. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus is our peace. He comes and brings these two opposing parties to reconciliation. That God was opposed to us and we were opposed to God and Jesus comes and becomes our peace. He provides what God wants to satisfy His wrath against us and He provides what we need in order to stand before God and to remove the hostility that we had towards Him. But not only did Christ break down that barrier between us and God, the point of this text is actually that Christ did that between us and the Jews as well. That there was a barrier between us and God but also between us and the Jews. That's what verse 14 is talking about at the end and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man that's why we're talking about this relationship between Jew and Gentile make the two into one new man it's not talking about us and God we're not we're not becoming god in any way and god's not becoming us But this is talking about a relationship between ourselves and the Gentiles, or the Jews, excuse me. If you're a Jew, it would be between you and the Gentiles. But as an Old Testament Jew or Gentile, you could only come to God if you did so through the Jewish community, like Rahab and others. But even if you became a proselyte, as I mentioned earlier, you still have restrictions. And so if we wanted to categorize them or put them on various planes of Uh, of of superiority, we would say believing Jews and then believing Gentiles. They were never on the same plane as the Jews, were they? They never had all the same rights and privileges as the believing Jews, did they? And, And yet what Christ does is He destroys that barrier that there are between those two groups of people, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So that Paul could say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. He is our peace. He abolished the enmity that there was between ourselves and the Jews. And He reconciled us both into one body. Look at verse 16 with me. And might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So, the point is, is that we were at war, in a sense, with the Jews. We were enemies of the Jews. And yet, what Christ did is He reconciled them. He That's what reconciliation is. It's it's removing the hostilities there are between the two parties. And so Christ had to do that through His death. And obviously, what His death provided was not just atonement for our sins individually, but we know that the blood of Christ is what bought the church, right? It was the blood of Christ that bought His church. And so, His church Death not only provided us individual atonement, individual satisfaction to God for the wrath that we deserve, but also it it brought the church into existence so that Jew and Gentile could be reconciled into one body. That's the purpose of it. That's part of the purpose, one of the main purposes of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to bring us together with the Jews. The benefits of this reconciliation are obvious. Obviously, it, it brings together those who are far off. Who is far off? The Jews or the Gentiles? The Gentiles. Look at look at verse 17. And he preached, he came and preached peace to you who are far away. That's the same idea there in verse 13. That you are far off. And notice at the end of verse 17, and peace to those who are near. Who would that those be? The Jews. So he Preached reconciliation. He preached peace to both Gentiles who are far away and to the Jews who were near. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19. And so, one of the benefits of Christ reconciling us with the, Gent- the Jews is that we are uh, no longer enemies of them. We're no longer at war with them. We're no longer. Uh, excluded from the blessings of God in the way that we were before, but also, verse 18, we now have access to God. Verse 18 says, for through Him we both have our access in one Spirit. It's not that the Jews now have special access to God and we have lesser access, but that we both have access to God in one Spirit. We have the same Spirit working within both uh, groups of people. And so when they come to Christ, when a person comes to Christ, they have the Spirit and they have access to the Father. And then, thirdly, the third benefit of reconciliation peace, access to God, and then we become a part of God's household, part of God's family. Verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 tells us we're no longer strangers and aliens. Think about the difference between how you treat. A stranger in your home and how you treat a family member. If a stranger walks into your front door, walks through your front door, and says, "Hey, I need a couple thousand dollars for a down payment on the car," you're going to be resp- you're going to respond differently to him than you do to your son who asks the same thing, right? That's the difference between a stranger and a family member. Instead of an alien, now we are a citizen. I think about it with regard to our country. We treat aliens differently than we, or at least we should, treat aliens of our country differently than we should that we treat citizens. Citizens have different rights. And when I say aliens, don't think of you know, outer space aliens. People who are non-citizens. That's the idea of aliens. Um, so we are no longer strangers and aliens, but now we are, verse 19, We are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. We're all part of the same family. Whether we are Gentile or Jew, we're a part of the same family and we're treated the same way in God's eyes as the Jews are. They don't have any special privileges over us. We are not lesser creatures than they are. the end of verse 19, we are of God's household. We are of God's household. The reason that our status as a family and a citizen is secure is because it has a sure foundation where we are bought with the blood of Christ. we are uh, resting in the foundation of God's power, that God's family. So if God calls us a part of His family, no one can say differently. That you are lesser than the Jews. You don't get the same rights as them. But but God's already told us we have these rights. and So you can't take them away from us. You can't do any differently. Verse 20 shows us the sure foundation that we have in this family. That it comes from the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets. Now at first glance, we would think that these men are the 12 apostles of the New Testament and Who? The Old Testament prophets, right? But we have to keep in mind that, that there were New Testament prophets as well. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations may not or was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed, notice, to His holy apostles and prophets. Okay, so there is a good indication that there are prophets within the New Testament. That this great mystery, the mystery of the church of Jesus Christ was not revealed in the Old Testament. No one knew anything in the Old Testament about a church. They didn't understand how Jew and Gentile would come together. They didn't never even heard the word church. Uh, but But now, this mystery has been revealed, and it hasn't been revealed to Old Testament prophets. They didn't understand that. It was revealed to the New Testament apostles, verse 5, and the New Testament prophets. That's why the word now is used in that verse. So, that's why I would suggest in verse 20 of chapter 2, we're not talking about Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets. And we have to keep in mind that this was just a temporary office that was there as the church was being established. And you remember the purpose of the prophet was simply to do what? to speak on behalf of God. Okay, So that makes sense that they would need New Testament prophets, men who would be able to speak on behalf of God and say that, yes, this church is God's new way of dealing with believers. And what the text tells us in chapter 2, verse 20, is that these apostles and these prophets, these people who spoke on behalf of God, are the foundation of the church that, that we receive benefit from. And forever the apostles, we know, will be that foundation. The reason we know that is because Revelation 21.14 says that the wall of the New Jerusalem has 12 foundation stones, and on each foundation stone is a name of one of the 12 apostles. And so what that tells us is that these apostles were very much uh, significant to the to the initial beginnings of the church, and they're very much uh, still of great value to us, right? We're still valuing from the twelve apostles with all that's been written from them or by one of their companions. But we also have to recognize that this foundation of the church, that it was built, that, that was uh, laid on the foundation of the apostles, is not as important as. The cornerstone. Look at the end of verse 20. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together. So, the foundation, if you want to picture it like a building, the church is a building. The foundation is the apostles and and we could say the prophets, but then the the main cornerstone, the main fundamental stone that has to be square, that has to be in the right spot to hold up everything and and to provide the, the stability is this cornerstone. and Obviously, that is Jesus Christ. This stone you recognize was talked about as the stone which the builders rejected, right? And Now has become the chief cornerstone. It's It was something that before people would not even see that it's that important. It's kind of left off to the side as the building is, is starting to go up. You would never expect this type of stone. In fact, it became a stumbling block. It said... To many of the Jews, because they didn't recognize its purpose. But now it's become the main centerpiece in the building, the most important piece of the building. That's Jesus Christ. The way this happened is is by declaring Jesus as Savior, Acts chapter four tells us. He's declared a Savior through the resurrection and through the Old Testament prophets, and therefore there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He alone can can be that cornerstone. And the confidence and guarantee that we have because Jesus is this cornerstone is that the whole building of believers here's where we come back to our main point today that this whole building of believers will grow into a holy temple. Okay, so let's go back to our building analogy. If we have a sure foundation, the apostles and prophets, and we have the cornerstone that's going to make sure that this building is in the right, uh, it's, it's it's set up in the right way, that it has the right uh, dimensions, and that it's it's founded properly. It's not going to fall over because we have those. We can be sure that the rest of the building is going to be built. And what's the building designed to do? Look at verse twenty-one. Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. What was the purpose of the temple? A dwelling place for whom? For God. This is the purpose of the church, folks. So that God would dwell among us. And the fact that Christ is our cornerstone, the apostles are our foundation, we can be sure that God is going to finish this building. Making each one of us a part of that building so that He can dwell among us. This is guaranteed. Guaranteed. The entire church is called a building here, growing into a holy temple. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because we see this same idea of the church being called a holy temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think when we look at these verses, familiar verses, we often think of these in individual terms that we are the temple of God. And there is a sense in which we are the place in which God, or we are people in whom God resides through his spirit right but this text specifically 1st Corinthians three sixteen and 17 is referring to the church let me read the text and then I'll tell you why 1st Corinthians three sixteen. do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you if any man destroys the temple of God God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are Okay, so here's the way we often understand this verse and, and apply it. Do you individually, Christian, do you individual Christian not know that you are individually a temple of God and that if anybody destroys your body specifically, then God will destroy him because the temple of God, you, your person, is holy and that is what you are. That's the way we often understand that. But what we need to understand here. Is that these pronouns in this verse are all plural? Okay, we don't really get this because when we say you, I could be talking to you individually or I could be talking to you as a whole. Okay, so I could say to my son, You need to go and close the door to the van, right? Or I could say to you, You all need to be here for the next service. We're going to be talking about Psalm 1 or something like that. But I could just say I don't have to say you all. I could just say you. You need to be here for the next service. I'm not talking just to my son. I'm talking to all of you. See, but in the old and and the New Testament and the Old Testament, they had a way of showing first person, uh, uh, or they had showing singular pronouns. This is a second person plural pronoun, you, and they had a way of showing plural pronouns. And so if you look in the Greek text, what you're going to find is that these are plural. So here's how we could read it. Let's go back through with that understanding and read this as if these are plural because they are. Verse 16. Do you all, okay, you church at Corinth, not know that you all are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you all? If any man... Destroys the temple of God. That is you as a whole. God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you all are. Okay, so this is not a a restriction against killing a person. We have that in other places. Obviously, murder is against God's design. But this is actually a uh, this is actually a command against destroying the church of God destroying the church of god destroying the temple where god resides it was the place the temple was the where the, the the place where god resided where he lived what does that tell you about what christ is doing with his body the church he's building up this temple for a specific purpose so that we can be the place where god lives turn back to ephesians chapter and we'll uh, make some application here for our passage this morning. If you are a part of this building, this temple, okay, then church membership is not an option. Here's what I mean by that. If you are a part of the building, so that means that you have been saved, you have been reconciled from yourself... From the enmity that you had with God and the enmity that you had with other believers. Now you've been reconciled, but you haven't been reconciled to be a lone ranger type of Christian, right? Because if we are, okay, let's just take this analogy of the building. If we are one of the bricks of the building, then what good are we if we're laying down on the ground over there away from the building? We have no value that's because that's not the way Christ designed you. He didn't design you to be a Christian out on your own. He designed you to be a part of a community of believers. And so if you are a brick, or if we take the analogy of the church as a flock, if you are a sheep, what good are you if you're not a part of the fold? Or if we take the analogy of the body, what good are you as a part of the body that's kind of just laying over there, not doing anything, not connected to the body? So I would say the same thing to you. What, What good, what value are you as a Christian that's not a part of a local church? What value are you if you haven't joined in membership with a local church? What value are you to yourself? Part of the purpose in joining a church is not just so that you can contribute to the needs of the body. You should do this. But also so that, that the body can contribute to your needs as well. Okay, we all work together to become a dwelling place of God. And this imagery helps us point to where we ought to be. That God never designed for us to be an individual Christian. But as an individual, that we would be part of something much larger. Right? Something much larger. That we would be put into this building that God is making so that He can come and dwell among us. So that we could contribute to the needs of the body. So that God could grow you spiritually. So that He could increase your spiritual vitality through the other members of this church as you submit yourself to the leadership of this church. So if you are part of the building, church membership is not optional. Secondly, if you are part of the building, active church membership is not optional. Okay, So first is church membership is not optional. And then I would say secondly, active church membership is not optional. Perhaps... You know, you listen to this last point point. you said, well, I'm a member, so I'm good. I'm all set because I am a part of the building. But are you? Are you a member of the church or are you only a nominal member? Do you know what I mean by that? A nominal member? A member in name only? Are you actually contributing to the needs of the body as a member of this church? I'm not solely talking about financial needs, although we as individual members have responsibilities to contribute to the needs of the body as a whole. That's not what I'm talking about primarily. I'm talking about service. Are you contributing to the needs of the body in service? Are you praying for the other members of the church? Are you attending the services? How can you encourage people that are a part of the body that Christ died for, if you're not here. Okay, so are you praying for the members? Are you encouraging the, the faint-hearted? Are you helping the weak? Are you admonishing the unruly? And if you're just a member a name only, you just have your name on the list and you're not here, then you can't do that. Because your responsibility is to be an active member of the expression of Christ's body in this area in Royal Oak. Maybe you don't do that because you just come for what the church can give you. You know, if I come, however many services I do a week, I just want to be X. Okay, fill in the blank. I want to be fed. I want my needs to be met. I want all these things. Okay, perhaps that's why you come to church. And so you walk away saying, that's not a place of fellowship. I don't feel like we've done fellowship at this church. But if you do, that's because you don't understand what fellowship is. We think of fellowship as, you know, donuts and casual conversations, people asking me questions, but fellowship is actually sharing. And what does sharing imply? That we're actually sharing. We're actually giving. We're we're contributing. Not that we're take take taking, we are Sharing and sharing is not free, it costs something. And so, if you want to see fellowship in the church, then you have to be willing to give. Church membership, active church membership, is a commitment to genuine Christian fellowship. You can't have genuine Christian fellowship if you're here very infrequently. When we get to Ephesians chapter 4, we will see that the only way that individual Christians and the church corporately can avoid being tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine is when we submit ourselves to the leadership of the church and when we speak the truth to one another in love. That doesn't happen when we're here very sporadically. That doesn't happen if we haven't committed ourselves fully to the church of Jesus Christ. That only happens when we have given ourselves fully to this organization, this organism that God has designed to display His glory so that He can live among us. In order for you to speak the truth to one another in love, there are a few things that have to happen. One, you have to care about other people. You can't care about people if you're not here. Church membership is a commitment to care. You have to care for their spiritual well-being. You have to care whether or not they are hearing the Word of God. You have to care what about what's going on in their life. In order to speak the truth in love, number two, you have to understand the truth before you can speak it. Church membership is not only a commitment to care for other people, it's a commitment to learn the truth. That's why we have all these services. You think we're just trying to fill in time slots? We just didn't have anything else to do or everybody, every other church is doing this? No, this is a per- we're doing this for a purpose so that we can teach and learn the truth for ourselves, so that we can share it with others, so that we can hold one another accountable. And then number three, in order for us to speak the truth in love, we have to be humble enough to call other people to watch our lives you know, if we're going to go out and say to them, you know, I'm concerned about your life spiritually, then we have to be willing for them to say the same thing to us. I'm concerned about your life spiritually. And here's what I see. That means we have to have a commitment to humility. Mutual humility. We're willing to say, I'm going to watch your life, but I want you to watch mine. Church membership says, I can't run this race alone. Christ died for my sins, but He didn't die only for my sins. And because I recognize that I'm a part of God's greater plan of displaying His glory, I need to be an active member of a Bible-believing church. Church membership is a commitment to care. It's a commitment to learn the truth. And it's a commitment to mutual humility. Are you a part of the building that God is designing? Are you a part of it? Are you an active part of it? Are you a part that's kind of just coming in and out? I would encourage you that if you are not a member of of a good church, that you ought to think about that. This is not an option for you. You can just kind of go along in life, but, but that God is calling you to To make a commitment to him and to other people that you're going to allow them to watch your life and hold you accountable. That doesn't happen if you're not a part, if you're not a a member. And I would encourage you, if you are a member and you're not active in the church, you need to be. Start looking out for the needs of other people, start being here more regularly. Just make that a commitment and do it. You will not regret it, I guarantee it. It's the best thing that you can be a part of in this world, the local church. This is what God's doing. And He's receiving great praise through those who are actively involved in the church. I've seen it in your lives, and you've been encouragement to me, and I've been able to praise God because of the things that He's done through you. Why would you not want to be a part of that? Let's pray. Father, we do owe all of our lives to You. We're thankful that You brought us who were formerly far off, strangers, aliens, separated from Christ and uh, far away from Your ways. You brought us near through the blood of Christ. And You have reconciled us to God. Yes, that, that is phenomenal. We can't thank You enough for that. But You've also recognized... Or reconciled us to other people who were in bondage to their sin as well. And You broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. So now that we can have access to You through the Spirit, we praise You for Your grace. We ask for You to search our hearts. Show us where we need to change, where we need to become more committed. Even myself, that I need to be more committed to, to being actively engaged in the lives of other people. I'm sure each person here can see ways in which they need to grow. Lord, if there are people who need to to join the church or to become more consistent in their relationship with people, more serious about their care for people, I pray that You would work in their hearts today as well. I pray that as a, a result that our church would grow in our love for one another, but most importantly, our love for You. As we respond to you in obedience, may we see the great value of being a part of Christ's church. That we are a a temple being molded together with Christ as our cornerstone. Lord, we long for the day when the struggles of this life are over, where the tears and pain are, are all gone. And we ask for our Savior to come quickly. But until that time, we know that there are lots of people who, who do not glorify You as they should. And so we want to reach out to them. We want to see more people praise You. We know that we don't praise You as much as we ought and our lives don't constantly exist for Your praise. We're often turning away from You. And so we need to grow in our own Christian lives. And we ask for Your help to do that until our Lord comes. Help us to be faithful to what You've called us to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.